and that God has brought just such wonderful servants of the Lord, and we just, just love having Benjamin here leading our worship every Sunday. And, um, you know, as we get to started this morning, we're going to be covering in Numbers three chapters today. I'm going to pray for us in a moment, but I want to just, um, sh- just share that we're going to be taking kind of a, you know, a higher view look down on these passages this morning, because to do three chapters in one Sunday, we're either going to be here till two o'clock, or I'm going to have to do the summary version of reading, so you can rest assured we're choosing the summary version of reading. Um, but in my sermon a few, um, probably about six or seven weeks ago, on Numbers chapter 14, um, I shared why we as Christians no longer sacrifice animals today. And I used Hebrews chapter 10 as the main text in answering that question. And by the way, while I'm speaking, just raise your hand. If you'd like a Bible this morning, just raise your hand. And those distributing them, we're glad to get you one. And if you don't have one at home, I encourage you, please take it home with you as our gift. But uh, as we went through and looked at why is it that we no longer sacrifice animals today, Hebrews chapter 10 really clearly showed that the reason exclusively is because Jesus Christ is our once and for all perfect sacrifice who was sacrificed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and no other sacrifices are needed. Now, as we look at um, the topic of animal sacrifice, I came across an article in an Israeli newspaper. I don't read this every week. Don't worry. It's something I found while I was doing some studying. It's called Heretz, and it's a Jerusalem newspaper. And going back to April 2016, there was an article in here that said, why Jews stopped sacrificing lambs for Passover and why some have started trying to perform it on the Temple Mount again. I thought, wow, I'd like to read this. And I want to read just a couple sections of this for you today. It says, the arrest of several Jewish activists for trying to smuggle in a kid, a goat, and conduct a sacrifice on the Temple Mount last Friday is a timely reminder that before the Passover Seder was invented, the festival was all about the killing and eating of baby goats and sheep. Now we're going to read today in in the book of Numbers where it talks about it being lambs that were being sacrificed. The source of this ancient rite is the book of Exodus, where God ostensibly gives Moses instructions on how Passover should be celebrated. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, God tells Moses. In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. God explains that either a goat or a sheep may be used, but either way, it shall be without blemish, a year, a male of the first year. On the eve of Passover, God tells Moses, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at dusk, and they shall take the blood and put it on the two side posts and on the lintel upon the houses wherein they shall eat it. Then it goes on and says, the ancient ritual abruptly came to an end in 70 AD when the Romans put down the Jews' great revolt and destroyed the temple. Within about two generations, the practice ceased, and sometime in the second century, Jews stopped the practice of sacrificing baby goats and sheep on Passover, until recently, that is. 
After the establishment of the state of Israel and the conquest of East Jerusalem and the Temple Mount site in the 1967 Six-Day War, a fringe group of religious Jews has taken these developments as a sign of the apocalypse. In 1967, they established the Temple Mount and Eretz Yisrael Faithful Movement, which is dedicated to rebuilding the Jewish temple on the Temple Mount, a site now occupied by Islamic shrines, the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock. To this end, they have been training personnel and preparing the objects that are required for the temple operation to commence. Since Passover 1968, Jewish groups, generously funded by evangelical Christians in the United States, who share their eagerness for the apocalypse, have been trying to sacrifice goats and sheep on the Temple Mount. However, they have been repeatedly turned away by the Israeli government, which fears their actions could trigger a holy war. The Temple Mount faithful are unperturbed and in recent years have been holding practice Passover sacrifices elsewhere in Jerusalem, biding their time until they can successfully sacrifice goats and sheep on the Temple Mount itself. Now, we're going to be looking at this topic of um, animal sacrifice in the book of Numbers, and here we can see right from an Israeli newspaper just two years ago that this is a very contemporary issue as well. Now, I showed back looking at Hebrews chapter 10 that really there is no need at this time for animal sacrifice because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, I don't have time to get into a big study of eschatology this morning, which is a fancy theological word meaning the study of the end times, but there's different views in evangelical circles. Some people believe that one day the temple will be rebuilt. We can go back and we see Ezekiel's temple talked about in the book of Ezekiel. And some, in some prophetic circles in the, within evangelical Christianity, they believe that during the millennium, the physical temple will be rebuilt on the site where it was in Jerusalem, and that animal sacrifices will be reinstituted with Jesus Christ reigning in the thousand-year millennium on the earth. Now, other evangelical Christians will look at the Ezekiel temple and look at it as a spiritual, they'll spiritualize it to say that there is no further ever going to be a need for animal sacrifice and that when Jesus Christ comes back, that that is going to take us right into the new heavens and the new earth and there will not ever be animal sacrifices here on this earth. Now, I'm not going to get into all of that and the, the whys and hows and the texts that, that talk about it, but what I do want to say is that from the period of time from when Jesus, through his spirit, remember Jesus went, was resurrected, went back up to heaven, and he told his disciples to wait. And in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples. And at that chap, in chapter 2 of Acts, when that took place, that was the beginning of the church. And it began the church age, which lasts from that time until the return of Jesus Christ. And what I would like to say is that clearly from Scripture, that we can agree that from that point in time until Jesus returns, there is no need for animal sacrifice, just as we saw in Hebrews chapter 10, because Jesus Christ took your sin and mine upon himself, died upon that cross as the unblemished lamb. First Corinthians tells us that as well. And that Jesus died, and there's no need for further sacrifice. 
So if you happen to be one of the Christians that they referred to in this article that's sacrificing animals today, please stop it. Um, it's pretty messy. It's not good at all for the lambs. And we certainly don't want to have PETA outside every Sunday morning picketing Riverstone Church because we're sacrificing lambs. But thankfully, we have a Savior in Jesus Christ who saw the problem that we had. He saw our sin problem. He knew that we were separated forever from a holy God. And Jesus went to the cross as a sinless, unblemished sacrifice and died on your behalf and mine. So as we go through Numbers 28 through 30 today, and we talk about animal sacrifice, thankfully we are on this side of the cross knowing that Jesus Christ has already paid the price for our sins. As we move into Numbers chapter 28, what we're going to be looking at is this is um, the, the people of Israel at this time were, they were just the 40 years of wandering through the desert had come to an end. They were camped right on the Jordan River, right opposite the city of Jericho. Pastor Tom last week did a great job showing on a map all the wanderings and how towards right now at the end of Numbers that they camped right there along the Jordan on the east side of the Jordan and they were about to go in and take the land. And what God is doing here is God is giving in these three chapters that we're going to look at today detailed instructions on how his people were to live in the new land that they were going to take on to stay in continual fellowship with him. And I mentioned that we are going to keep like a big picture view of this, so I'm not going to be reading all of the text, but I want to give you a little bit of imagery that we're going to see an, an incredible number of animals were sacrificed every year in ancient Israel. And God gave very specific instructions as to what was to be sacrificed and how it was to be sacrificed. So as we look at this, um, we have to ask ourselves the questions in, in this book too. Why was all of this necessary? Well, what I want to do is I want to read Numbers 28, verses 1 through 8. We're going to see the very first of these sacrifices. This is talking here about the daily offering. And then we're going to come back and look at that question, why was all of this necessary? Before I do that, would you join with me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for the message that you've given us through the book of Numbers. We thank you what we've learned so far as we've studied this book together. Lord, today we're looking at two topics, sacrifice and vows. And we may ask the question, how does this apply to us today? Lord, in many ways, these, thing, these things seem so very foreign to us. I pray that you would open our eyes, but more than anything, Father, open our hearts to what it is that you would want to teach us through your word today. And we pray that your spirit would do a mighty work within each one of us as we commit ourselves to you, as we study and read your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's pick up in verse 1, chapter 28. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be careful to present my offering, my food for my offerings by fire, of a soothing aroma to me at their appointed time. You shall say to them, This is the offering by fire which you shall offer to the Lord, two male, male lambs, one year old, without defect, as a continual burnt offering every day. You shall offer the lamb in the morning 
and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Also a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with a fourth of a hin of beaten oil. It is a continual burnt offering which was ordained in Mount Sinai as a soothing aroma and offering by fire to the Lord. Then the drink offering with it shall be a fourth of a hin for each lamb. In the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight as the grain offering of the morning and as its drink offering, you shall offer it, an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. Well, what we see here is I just read through what we're calling the daily offering. And we're going to see that the scripture, as we go through this in chapters 28 and 29, we get very detailed instructions on how things were to be sacrificed, what the quantities were. We saw the animal sacrifices we just read, that oil and strong drink to the Lord were to be included. And God gave very specific instruction on why these things are to be offered. Before I read that, I asked the question, so why was all of this necessary? Well, if you walk away with anything this morning, here's what I'd love you to walk away with and just remember. This overwhelming emphasis on sacrificial worship should help you see the enormity of the offense of your sin against the holiness of God and should drive you hopefully as a repentant sinner to the foot of the cross. You see, our sin, the offense of our sin, is an enormous offense to God. And we have no understanding the depth of the sin that each one of us is in. And you see, when we compare that to the holiness of our holy God, we should walk away amazed at the grace that comes to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ, who willingly went to that cross as an unblemished lamb, completely sinless, to die on our behalf, so that you and I no longer have to sacrifice animals. We don't have to strive to earn God's favor. We don't have to wonder if our sins are forgiven because it all comes to us through God's amazing grace and the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for each one of us. So as we think about this whole chapter of animal sacrifice and how it was done and why it was done, my hope is that it drives each of us as repentant sinners to the foot of the cross. Now, as I read chapter, verses 1 through 8, that was called the daily offering. We saw there was a lamb in the morning, there was a lamb in the evening. And the daily offerings were something that were done every single day. What we're going to see through this is, as I read these offerings, these were all what we could call national or corporate offerings for the nation of Israel. They were done on behalf of the entire nation to keep the nation in a reconciled relationship with God. In addition to what I read here and all the offerings in these two chapters, the Israelites on a private level, personal level, were going to the tabernacle with offerings for atoning for their own sins to the Lord all day long. So we saw it starts with the daily offerings, and what we're going to see is that it builds. There's monthly, there's weekly offerings, there's festival offerings, and all the time, the individual Israelites are bringing their own sacrifices to the priests at the tabernacle to be raised up as an offering to the Lord. It would have been an amazing sight to see this. 
to see all of this taking place. But what I want to give you a summary of is just these national offerings, not including the individual offerings of the Israelites, on an annual basis, 113 bulls, 32 rams, and 1,086 lambs were sacrificed every year. Now, it's going to be hard because I'm not going to read all of this to help you keep it in summary form. Here's chapters 28 and 29 broken down by passages. What we see, we just read verses 1 through 8, which were the daily offerings. And what we'll see is that that's the daily offerings were part of, it's in white, the regular offerings. So every week you had the daily offerings every day. They were being offered weekly on the Sabbath. There was a Sabbath offering, which we'll read in a moment. Then monthly, there was a monthly offering. These all build upon themselves. So on the Sabbath day, they offered the daily offering plus the Sabbath offering. Then when the monthly offering fell, that was added to the other two regular offerings. And then throughout the year, you had festival offerings. And remember, these were all on behalf of the nation. So we'll see, we'll read about the Passover offering a little bit later, and then we go into the Feast of Weeks and Trumpets and, and on down. And you'll see that all of this was being done to keep the people in a right relationship with God. Now, picture I mentioned that the daily offering, there was a lamb in the morning, there was a lamb in the evening that was being offered. Then we would have a Sabbath offering was being offered on the Sabbath day. We had all these offerings taking place. If it was a holiday, think of these festival offerings as national holidays. This was like the Jewish version of Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, and thanks, you know, Fourth of July. Whatever the Jewish holiday was, there were sacrifices that were involved with it. Picture the accumulation of this. All of these animals being offered on the altar, smoke just going up before the Lord. Now, all of the Israelites didn't gather around every day just to stand there all day long and watch all these sacrifices. You see, the Israelites were encamped around the tabernacle with the tabernacle in the middle. Wherever their camp was, they had a view of the tabernacle right in the middle. So as they're going about their daily routine and whatever it is they're doing, continually they're seeing this smoke just going heavenward. And that smoke was a reminder to them of their covenant relationship with God. It was a reminder of God's abiding presence to them as well. You see, today, we don't have an altar on a tabernacle that we can look at every single day and see that smoke rising up. But you see, every day, for us, we have to say, wow, I am a sinner every bit as much as those ancient Israelites were back in the Old Testament. And my sin is an offense to God. What is it that I'm doing to stay in continual fellowship with God? See, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. But man, it's a battle, isn't it? To stay in fellowship with God. You see, as, as God was looking at bringing his people into the crossing over into this new land, he knew that there were going to be so many distractions there. You see, God was concerned. God wasn't concerned about the inhabitants of the new land. He knew that he was going to lead them in battle and win those battles for him. What God was concerned about was the hearts of his people because he knew that their hearts were wicked, just like ours. You see, God knew when they got in there, man, they were going to have it easy. They were going to have, so they thought. God, you know, he thought, man, they're going to have their own land. They're going to have plenty of food. There's going to be beautiful surroundings. It's going to be all of these things for the people in this new land. 
that are going to be distractions leading the people away from God. You see, aren't you glad that we don't have any of those things today? Yeah, we, you know, we don't have food when we want it, do we? We can't just hop on an airplane and go anywhere we want. We don't have cable television. We don't have all these things bombarding us. We don't have careers where it's tempting to chase after money and material wealth rather than God. Well, aren't you glad we have none of that? You see, what God was looking at was he knew what it was going to take to keep his people in fellowship. He knew their hearts were going to be distracted. He knows today that mine and your hearts are going to be distracted by so many things that the world has to offer. And now we don't have that uh, smoke rising up heavenward to look at every single day. But, you know, we have something that the ancient Israelites never had. We have the church. And sometimes we place so little value on the church. And you go through Scripture, and God refers to it as the body of Christ. He refers to it as the bride of Christ. He even goes on in 1 Peter and calls it a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Think about that. Think about what he's describing here. It's a spiritual house. It's not this building. You know, we could pack up tomorrow and move down to Cairn University. Oh, wait, we already did that. And you know what? We were still a church. We could pack up today and go sit in the field outside here. And we would still be a church. We don't need this building. You see, God describes it. It's a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. In the Old Testament, who was it that was actually taking out the knives and offering up these animals as sacrifices? It was the priests. Now God's sitting here saying, we have a holy priesthood. Guess who he's talking about? He's not talking about Pastor Bob. He's not talking about Pastor Tom or Pastor John or Pastor Austin. Yeah, we're included, but not any more so than any of you. You see, you are a royal priesthood, and what does it say? Offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Look in the Old Testament, the detail they went through in offering up their sacrifices so they would be acceptable to God. And now it's sitting there saying that you are offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. What are those spiritual sacrifices that you're offering? Well, for one, if you were downstairs in the first service teaching our kids, guess what? That's a spiritual sacrifice. You are opening up the Word of God and investing into the lives of those children. If you leave here today and you're walking out and you run into someone and you realize, man, they just had surgery, they share with you, they're struggling in their marriage, and you come alongside of them and you point them to Jesus, you're offering up a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord. You know, if your next door neighbor just has surgery and you take over a meal and you just pray with them for just a couple minutes, you're offering up a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord. And because of Jesus Christ, God says it's an acceptable offering because he wants to work through the church today. You know, it's sad to me. At times I'll, I'll, I'll talk to people, and I've had people say to this, no matter which church I'm in, somebody will say, you know what? My relationship with God is private. I don't need the church. You know, I, I stay home on Sundays. You know, I, I, I watch Charles Stanley. I listen to Tim Keller. I listen to John MacArthur or whatever. And it's, it's, it's between me and God. We're good. Now, can you picture what it would have been like if an ancient Israelite had said to God, said to Moses, I don't need all that offering stuff. My relationship with God is personal. How do you think that would have flown? Today, why do we take the church 
with any less, without any more seriousness than what they did in the Old Testament. It's the body of Christ. It's the, it's the bride of Christ. So I have to ask, I'll go to people and sometimes once in a while, some of you will leave our church and I'll have a conversation with them and they'll say, well, I just, I never felt connected. And I'll say, oh, that's a shame. Well, what small group were you in? Well, I wasn't. Oh, well, where, where, where were you connected? What were you part of? Well, I, I really, I, I never was. I came on Sundays. And I'm going to tell you, if you just come on Sundays, you're attending a church. You're not part of a church. You need to ask yourself the question, whose lives are you investing into so that they are growing in their relationship with the Lord? Who have you opened yourself up to so that people are investing into you so that you're growing in your relationship with Jesus Christ? You see, God has given you spiritual gifts. He didn't give them to you so you can sit home on Sunday morning and watch TV. God gave you those spiritual gifts, and we see it in Ephesians chapter 4, for the building up of the body, the church. You see, back then, they had the spiritual, they had the animal sacrifices to keep them in fellowship with God. Today, we have one another. We have the church. And I want to challenge you, how are you investing yourself into the lives of people here? And what relationships are you in that you're letting people invest into your life as well? Well, we're going to move on now into, into verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 talk about the Sabbath offering. This is the second of the regular offerings that you can see here. Obviously, this fell weekly. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. Then on the Sabbath day, two male lambs, one year old without defect, and two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering and its drink offering. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath, in addition to the continual burnt offering and its drink offering. Now, key words there says, in addition to. Remember, that, which, it's not on the screen now, but we had the daily offerings. Remember, two lambs, one in the morning, one in the evening. And now we see on the Sabbath, two lambs are, and plus additional things are being sacrificed. I'm going to move us right in into verse 11. And what we're going to see is what's called now the monthly offering. Sometimes this was referred to as the new moon offering as well. Let's look at verse 11. Then at the beginning of each of your months, you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord. I'm not going to read all about what was included there, but what we see is this is all growing. We have the daily offering, we have the Sabbath offering, now we have the monthly or the new moon offering, and these are all being um, given over to the Lord to keep the nation in fellowship with God. In addition to this, we have all the individual Israelites would have been bringing sacrificial offerings as well. Well, we're going to move in. I showed you on the chart that the next section, the next five, were called festival offerings. The first festival offering was the Passover. It's probably the one that you're the most familiar with. It begins in verse 16. Let's take a look at verse 16. Then on the 14th day of the first month shall be the Lord's Passover. On the 15th day of this month shall be a feast. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. By the way, that feast was referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It goes on for seven days. In verse 18, On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. You shall present an offering by fire, a burnt offering to the Lord. And then it goes on and lists all these things that are to be sacrificed as part of the Passover um, offering. 
I mentioned is that, that article that I just read talked about the Passover. That's what those Jews were wanting to celebrate and to sacrifice on the Temple Mount for. It goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 12. Remember when God instituted the Passover, it was right after the ninth plague, and God tells, comes to the people of Israel. And what's he tell them to do? To take a lamb. What kind of a lamb? An unblemished lamb. And to offer it up as a sacrifice. And what were they going to do with the blood? To wipe it on the doorposts and the lintel above the door. So that when the angel of the Lord would come through, any house, whether it was Egyptian or Israelite, if it didn't have the blood on the door, those inside, the firstborn inside that house would die. But if the blood of the lamb was on that door, what happened? The angel of the Lord passed on by, and all of those inside the house would live. And now God's telling the people of Israel that you are to celebrate this every Passover, and here is what you're to sacrifice along with it. Well, I don't have time to go through all of these festival offerings, and you can say thank you, Lord, to that, or we would be having a very late lunch today. But... Um, we see we have the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles. These are all national offerings that are being raised up to the Lord, and animals are being sacrificed throughout. If you want some homework, for those of you who would like to look a little bit further into this, write down Leviticus chapter 23. You can read this at home, because well, that's a parallel passage to Numbers 28 and 29. And what you see here is Leviticus 23 describes what all of these feasts in yellow are and when they fall, what they're for, and it describes it to the people. And then in Numbers 28 and 29, God's giving us the instructions, well, he gave it to the people back then through Moses, here are the instructions on what shall be sacrificed as you celebrate each of these feasts. So we see that this is a pretty elaborate deal. I had a, a seminary professor when I was at Dallas Seminary named Ron Allen. He was an Old Testament professor and scholar. And he wrote a quote that I want to read to you because it fits in so well with what we're looking at today. All sacrifices, whether of the morning or evening, of Sabbath or new moon, have their ultimate meaning in the death the Savior died. Apart from his death, these sacrifices were just the killing of animals and the burning of their flesh with attendant ceremonies. After his death, sacrifices such as these are redundant indeed. Offensive, for they would suggest that something was needed in addition to the Savior's death. But before his death, these sacrifices were the very means God gave his people in love to help them face the enormity of their sin, the reality of their need for his grace, and in some mysterious way, to point them to the coming cross of Savior Jesus. That summed that, sum that up so well. I'm going to just give you a summary statement as we wrap up for 29, chapter 29. If you could just remember this. Only God's immeasurable grace can cover the vastness of our sin. Probably should have personalized that and said only can cover the vastness of your sin. Because I want you to think of it personally. Think of the offense of your sin against the holy God. And that's why I say that should drive us as repentant sinners to the foot of the cross. Otherwise, can you imagine what this platform would look like if we were up here sacrificing animals day in and day out? Thankfully, we don't have to do that because Jesus Christ has done everything for us. Well, we're going to transition 
Today's an interesting sermon. I have to admit, I, Tom and I, when we were breaking down chap, the book of Numbers, came up with the chapter breakouts, and we said, you know what, let's cover 28 and 30 in one sermon. And um, we didn't break it up by name at that point in time, but then when it fell to me, I looked at 28 and 30, and Tom was like, man, I'm glad I didn't get that, that one. Because <laughs> now we're going to go from sacrifices into vows. And you're going to think, well, what in the world do these mean? Well, remember I mentioned that the people were preparing to enter into the promised land. What God was doing was God was giving his people instructions on how to live when they got into the promised land. And now we're going to look at vows and like God's showing here and saying, listen, when you make vows, let me give you some guidelines that go along with them. And I want to hopefully then take it into, well, what does this all mean to us as well? Well, vows are a voluntary promise to do or not do specified things if God would or would not do something else. Now, there's different examples of vows out there. Um, probably the most common that we would think of today are wedding vows. Um, wedding vows, we make them before God with other people watching to say, Lord, I'm entering into this covenant marriage relationship and I am committing to do or not do certain things within the context of my marriage relationship. It's a great thing. Some marriage vows. Now, we probably have some other vows that are probably made a little less thoughtfully. Do you guys, anyone here who's a student, or we can remember back to our student days, we walk in and we take a test. Lord, please help me pass this test even though I haven't studied. And if I do, I promise to study two hours every day the rest of the semester. You know, or Lord, Please let Susie Jo say yes to going to the prong with me. And if she does, I promise to be respectful to my parents for the rest of the year. Now, we might have a little bit more serious ones. Maybe it's a foxhole prayer. Maybe it's you're in turbulence in an airplane that's getting really bad. And it's, Lord, if you get me safely home, I promise to be a missionary to the Congo. <laughs> you see, we make all sorts of different kinds of vows. And sometimes they're serious and well thought through, other times they're not. And Numbers chapter 30 is dealing with the vows that the people make. Let's start taking a look in verses 1 through 2 of chapter 30. Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the word which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord, or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. What we see in verses 1, and two, one through 2, one is vows are very serious. It says, he shall do what comes out of his mouth. But also, I want to show you, in verses 1 through 2, God here is talking to the men. Now, I mean, as in the male gender, because verses 3 through 16 are exclusively talking about vows made by women. And I want to give us a caution this morning. One is... This was a patriarchal society. So were all of the cultures that were around it. If we try and read this chapter through our contemporary American lens, you're going to lose the point of what this passage is. I want to give you that right up front. God values our truthfulness and integrity. And we're going to see that coming out in how he handles vows. But before we get into that much further, let's pick up. There's 30 references to vows in the Bible. We're going to look at two other than what's in the book of Numbers today, but there's a lot more that are out there. Obviously, this is something very important to God, but let's pick up in verse 3. 
Also, if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by an obligation in her father's house in her youth, and her father hears her vow and her obligation by which she has bound herself, and her father says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand, and every obligation by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father should forbid her on the day he hears of it, none of her vows or obligations by which she has bound herself shall stand. And the Lord will forgive her because her father had forbidden her. Now, I mentioned this was a patriarchal society, so any woman living back then who was unmarried was under the spiritual authority, the spiritual headship of her father. And this is giving a means that if a woman makes maybe a rash vow, or the term in Scripture, it's used in Leviticus, is a difficult vow. And what it means was, at one point in time, this vow made a lot of sense. But as time has gone on, this vow really no longer makes sense for me to keep it. You know, and so God is given here in this context, we see first the father the right to be able to annul that vow, but then the husband the right to annul that vow. So if a young woman made a, a vow of chastity and all of a sudden at 18 she gets married, her husband's probably going to be pretty quick to want to annul that vow. So we see here that people made vows all the time, probably more prominently in that culture, and they said, Lord, if you do this, I will do this. Lord, if, and then what they're saying here, here's a means to get out of rash or not carefully thought through vows or ones that have become difficult to fulfill. The book of Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 27, is where we see the term difficult vows. It's talking to men in Leviticus chapter 27. And what it tells us there is that if there was a vow that a man wanted to no longer fulfill, he would go to the priest, they would put a price, a value, on that vow. And if the man made an offering of that value, that vow would be forgiven him, and he no longer needed to fulfill it. So what we're seeing is different means here of getting out of rash or reckless vows. Now, Jephthah, in chapter 11 of Judges, probably made the most rash vow that we can think of in, this, in scriptures. Jephthah was a, a tribal leader. He was a warrior, and he made a vow to the Lord, and he said, Lord, if you give me victory in battle, the first thing that walks through the door when I get home, I'll offer as a burnt sacrifice. You talk about a not very well thought out vow, because when he got home, the first thing that came through the door was his daughter. Now, commentators and Bible scholars um, differ. Some feel that he actually did kill her and offer her as a burnt sacrifice. Others say that he dedicated her to the Lord for the rest of her life. Now, Whatever happened there, I, I tend to think there's a lot of evidence that he actually did offer her as a burnt offering. If that were the case, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that that's a vow that the Lord would never have wanted to be fulfilled. Now you can say, well, Pastor Bob, how can you say that? I thought we're supposed to fulfill our vows. Well, for one, if we go into the book of Leviticus and twice in the book of Jeremiah, human sacrifice is referred to as an abomination to the Lord. Not only that, it says in Jeremiah, it's something that never even entered into God's mind. One principle with vows, never keep a vow that causes you to disobey the word of God. You see, a man-made vow takes a lot less priority than God's word. 
So if you have made a vow that causes you to violate God's word, don't keep it. I'm going to share with you in a moment what you can do with that. But as we're going through this, what we're seeing is there's some allowances in Scripture for us to get out of vows that have been made. But I don't want to now lower the seriousness of our vows because there's other passages, and I'm going to show you two of them. James chapter 5, verse 12. I'm skipping through the rest of um, Numbers 30 here to, jump, to get to the New Testament. In James chapter 5, verse 12, it says, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes, and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Now, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37, says something very similar. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be, yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is of evil. Now, how do we tie up this section on vows? Well, let me just give you a couple points. One, I said, never make a vow or keep a vow that causes you to break or disobey the word of the Lord. The other one, and this is kind of obvious, is aside from well thought through and prayerfully considered vows, do not make vows. See, Jesus says there's no reason for it. See, I'm going on 30 years of marriage next year. I'm really glad that my wife was willing to make marriage vows 29 some years ago. It's been a great 29 years. They were thoughtfully prayed, prayed through vows. So there are vows that God would want us to make. But in general, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And there's no need to go any, any further than that. I mentioned that our, God values our truthfulness and our integrity. Here's a good principle to live by. God wants us to live in such a way and with such integrity that when you say yes, you mean yes. And when you say no, you mean no. So that you are a witness to the world around who know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. That you can be trusted to do what you say you'll do. You see, your gospel witness is at stake. If you get the reputation that he never follows through, she never follows through on the things that she says. So as Christians, our word should be enough, and it should match the gospel message that we preach. Now, I mentioned that Scripture um, talks about several types of vows. I mentioned marriage vows. Marriage vows tend to happen to be one that there's other teaching in Scripture that talks specifically about it. So when it comes to annulling marriage vows, you can't just look at the isolated verses I'm showing you because there's a lot of other scripture that talks about the marriage relationship and when and when it cannot be annulled by divorce. But in general, we need to hold to those vows. And the Bible gives us clear guidance on you know, when that can be, not be the case. But what I want to say here is, if you have made a vow rashly or one that really in the spiritual life that causes you to suffer in your relationship with the Lord or someone else, and Leviticus called it a difficult vow to continue in. There's a passage in Scripture that I think that applies really well. Confess it to God, knowing He is faithful and just and will forgive you your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness.
You see, God will not hold you to vows that are not the best for you spiritually or to someone else's spiritual life. So if you have made that vows like that, confess it to the Lord and he will forgive you of it. But take those vows seriously and recognize that to, have, to, to not continue following through with the vow is a serious thing. But God has made allowances for it in Scripture. I'm going to wrap up our message this morning. I talked about sacrifices. I talked about vows. And I said these were helping the people prepare to live in continual fellowship with God. As we close today, what I want you to remember is that your sins are a terrible offense to God. And our sins are enormous. Remember I pictured up here on this side here. Here's all of our sins. And on the right side of the cross, we can see the holiness of God. And what we see that's between the two of them is the cross of Jesus Christ. And as we think about the enormity of our sin, we think about the holiness of God, we think about what Jesus Christ took upon himself to die as that unblemished lamb for you and for me. It should drive us to the foot of the cross every single day as a repentant sinner. See, we don't have to sacrifice animals because Jesus Christ has done it all. And I hope that as we look at Numbers 28 and 30, it gives us a greater understanding of the amazing grace of God. I'm going to ask if Benjamin would come up. We are going to close the service this morning by singing two stanzas of amazing grace as we think about the amazing grace that God has given you as Jesus has gone to that cross.